Hey, I'm Dana Grash, the author of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage. If you'd like to check out more of my resources, visit danagresh.com and be sure to stick around to the end. Bob and I have a special invitation for you to consider. For more than 20 years, we have been sharing our redemption stories with teens and college-age students, and Bob has been likening the forbidden secrecy of sexual temptation to cheesecake. Well, if it were banned, if cheesecake were banned. That's right. right. Yep. Okay. So here's Bob talking to college students at our alma mater, Cedarville University, way back in 2014. If tomorrow the president said, we're going to ban cheesecake, which would never happen, I know, uh, but uh, if, if cheesecake was banned as of midnight tonight, you'd want cheesecake a whole lot more tomorrow. This is the part of the speech where Bob pretended to be a back alley cheesecake dealer. If I was wearing a trench coat and I went out on the street, I'd be like, hey, Italian, strawberry, chocolate chip. The point of my cheesecake illustration was that secrecy fuels desire. We've got to talk, really talk about lust and pornography and addiction. Otherwise, we're just contributing to the problem. When we learn to communicate about it, to tell the truth, it just dispels the power of sin. And so let's explore truth number seven, the truth will set you free. With the help of John Mark Comer, we'll grapple with the lies our culture disciples us with about sex. Dr. Julie Slattery will explain why Jesus is the only hope for overcoming those lies. And we're going to tell you the truth about why some men hate church. There will also be some disturbing sexual content in this episode. So this is a warning for you to protect young ears and minds. Oh, and Dana and I may or may not experience conflict during taping. (laughs) Hey there. Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast, where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset, but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dan Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. You are not alone. And I think that's what keeps us quiet and it keeps us nurturing these secrets and this pain is we feel like no one would understand I must be weird to have this going on in my life. No one has the kind of problems I have. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Here's Bob Gresh. Okay, so this episode of the Happily Even After podcast is a bit of a time capsule. That's the sound of Woodstock, a watershed moment in the 1960s counterculture movement. Sexual revolution promised freedom, happiness, but it has only produced spiritual and emotional bondage. And according to some, 
It's all Sigmund Freud's fault. He believed that sex was our most important desire. Yeah, then Dr. Alfred Kinsey took it one step further. His textbooks on human sexuality taught that sexual behavior the culture had once deemed immoral was actually normal behavior that needed to be expressed freely. And I looked at the graphs that he provided, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34 tables, and I said, wait a minute, that's a two-month-old baby. What, how does he know a two-month-old baby did or did not have an orgasm? That's the late Dr. Judith Reisman, a recognized historian in human sexuality. She revealed that Kinsey's research involved systematic child sexual abuse. She's talking to Jeremy Wiles on the Conquer series, a cinematic curriculum that's taught over 10 million men how to quit porn. And then table 34, a four-year-old child. Uh, 26 orgasms in 24 hours? That's an around-the-clock experiment. Wow, that's torture. That's torture, you bet. He also actually employed bona fide pedophiles to to do what they did to children for his so-called data. In spite of this repulsive activity, Kinsey is revered by many. In fact, the National Institute of Health website calls him, quote, a sexual pioneer and one of the most influential Americans of the 20th century. Kinsey conducted landmark studies of male and female sexual behavior that helped usher in the sexual revolution, end quote. In fact, his so-called research is the foundation of the sex education in today's American education system, really from elementary school through postgraduate studies. Yeah, and a 22-year-old college virgin, Hugh Hefner, read Kinsey's male volume and determined to take the philosophy to the masses. He launched, of course, Playboy magazine in 1953. He once said, Kinsey was the researcher and I am his pamphleteer. That's a quote. Since the 1960s, when the sexual revolution provided traction for these philosophies, well, it's been a slippery slope of sex lies. Yeah, John Mark Comer, the author of Live No Lies, great book, by the way, says, we are at war not with a foreign government or domestic terrorists or a creepy new AI hell-bent on taking over the world. No, it's a war we feel deep inside our own chest. We are at war with lies. So, like, the devil's lies don't sound like, hey, Elvis is alive. He's still living in Mexico. Believe it. They don't sound like that. Like, who cares? Why? That has no emotional bearing on my life. So it just, it doesn't matter. That's John Mark Comer talking to Carrie Newhoff in a YouTube video. But let's let's take, you know, a deeply Freudian kind of secular idea that I must be romantically and sexually satisfied to be a happy person. Mm. Which a lot of us wouldn't, if we were asked, do you believe that? We might say, no, I don't believe that. Almost all of us believe that because we're raised in a culture that deeply disciples us to believe that sexual and romantic fulfillment are mandatory to living a happy life. And without that, you will be miserable. Um, Obviously, Jesus would totally disagree with that statement as a celibate Mm -hmm. Jewish male. No, but that is the narrative, right? That marriage is oppressive or commitment is oppressive. Absolutely. And there's a left version of that that would talk about the patriarchy and da-da-da-da-da and, you know, gender roles. There's a right version that would talk about how you need to be married to be happy and da-da-da-da-da. But it's the same narrative. It's a personal fulfillment-based view of romance and sexuality. So when there's a thought that comes into my mind 
um, that I would argue is is more than just a thought. I, I would argue with the ancients that it's quite possibly demonically animated or has some kind of a dark energy or like a malignant will behind it that sounds something like, hey, John Mark, I know your wife is great and I know you've been married for 20 years now, but you know, you were 21 when you got married. She was 19. You hadn't even gone to college yet. You didn't know who you were. You had no idea what your Myers-Briggs type was or Enneagram number was. You're from totally different families of origin, totally different cultures. You know what? Your personalities just aren't a great fit. And it's okay. You know, you would be happier if you were to get a divorce and marry someone else. There's somebody out there that would be a better fit for you. And you'd just be a happier person. And and that's good. And you want that for her. And you want it for you. And you want it for you. Now, that's just as much of a lie as some right-wing conspiracy theory. Or, right. you know, the royal people are lizard, the royal family are lizard people. <laughs> it's just as flagrant of a lie. And you could cite study after study from a secular, you know, clinical psychologist to expose the dark comedy of that lie. But that lie, unlike Elvis or the royal family or lizard people, it plays to something really deep in my heart. Some kind of deep pain, deep fixture where I'm torn, where there's a part of me that deeply wants to love and honor and stay faithful to my wife until I die. And another part of me that just wants to have sex with whoever I want and be romantically satisfied and do my own thing and not have the responsibility of marriage and family. And that's not the deepest desire of my heart, but it's there. <laughs> and I make the case in the book that our strongest desires are often not our deepest desires. And, uh, but our hearts are these kind of battleground of desire, you know, this war of loves. Now that's some truth telling. John Mark Homer calling out the tension so many of us struggle with. Until we start to get that truthful, we're never going to overcome this epidemic of lust and porn in the church. So many marriages in our own church are in trouble right now or have wounds from the past, but you don't know it because no one's talking about it. And why? Why is there an epidemic at all? Dana talked with her good friend, Dr. Julie Slattery, a Christian psychologist and the founder of Authentic Intimacy, about that exact question. Why do you think the enemy chooses this area in our lives to attack? Yeah, I think for two reasons. First of all, sex is never going to be a neutral in your marriage. So in every marriage, sex is either going to be something that draws you together and bonds you and builds trust and communication and intimacy, or it's going to be something that is tearing you apart, that is creating distrust and is creating resentment and bitterness. And so that's the first reason. But the second reason is sex is never going to be a neutral area in your relationship with God. It's either going to be something that draws you into deeper intimacy with him as you understand healing and intimacy, or it's going to be something that creates a barrier. If you're believing the lie that sex is a neutral issue in your marriage, this is your wake-up call. Sex and marriage were designed by God to explain the intimacy we can have with him. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that, sometimes subtly and sometimes more overtly, like in this verse. Yeah, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. That's the Apostle Paul helping us understand that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And you know what? If that's true, if your holy marriage covenant is a picture of the greatest love that exists on this planet, how motivated 
do you think Satan is to see that picture destroyed in your life? And the key is to start talking about it. Start becoming radically vulnerable with your own redemption story. We, we need you to muster up the courage to tell your story too. But I know that's hard. So here's Dr. Julie Slattery again with something to encourage you. You are not alone. And I think that's what keeps us quiet. And it keeps us nurturing these secrets and this pain is we feel like no one would understand. I must be weird to have this going on in my life. No one has the kind of problems I have. Um, one of the benefits of being a psychologist is that I've spent years, decades listening to people's secrets and confidence. Mm -hmm. And when you hear the same stories over and over again, you start to realize, wow, there are a lot of us who are carrying secrets and pain and shame. And we feel like we have nowhere to go. But in reality, the people sitting right next to us can relate to us. Years ago, I wrote a book for teen guys struggling with lust and porn. And, and I included this story to try to help them understand that they're not alone, but they have to start talking about it. Here's the story. Once upon a time, there was a couple who visited a community of people who lived by a river. As evening approached, they were invited to sit down by the river and enjoy a cool beverage and then eat dinner with the people. While they ate calmly and pleasantly, a 14-foot crocodile suddenly came up out of the river, chomped off the arms of the couple sitting closest to the riverbank, and then slipped silently back into the dark waters. The people were alarmed and shocked, but they recomposed themselves. Those closest to the couple bandaged them up the best they could and transported them to medical assistance. Then they resumed their eating, drinking, and conversation, picking up right where they left off without any discussion of the incident. The visiting couple was horrified that the evening continued as if nothing had happened. Each time they tried to mention the tragic and violent act, someone in the group quickly changed the subject. The wife made one final attempt to bring up the incident. A couple just lost their arms to an enormous crocodile that came suddenly out of the river. Didn't you all see that? Or are we imagining things? Someone in the group replied, yes, I saw what happened. A number of couples are attacked each year in our community by crocodiles. The couple then looked closer at the group, and sure enough, they spotted people who were missing hands and feet, fingers and ears. Can't you do anything about the crocodiles, the wife asked? Another in the group replied with embarrassment clearly written on his face. It is impolite in our culture to talk about crocodiles. The visiting couple was stunned into bewildered silence. That's a powerful word picture that we originally discovered in a book by Ed Young titled Pure Sex. Yeah, and it's a picture of what porn has done to the church. You know, couples are literally being devoured by this crocodile of lust. Yeah, if you look closely, you can see marriages missing heart, couples without ears to hear one another. Empathy has been eaten alive, but it's still taboo to talk about it. We talk sometimes about the fact that people are married, but often not together right? They're just not in one accord. Yeah, they're not even talking about it in their own home. Right. Right. And yet it's really impacting pretty much everything we experience in the church. It was a number of years ago, I'd say 10, 12 years ago now or more, in studying culture, because 
I need to study culture and know how to hone my messages. And I kept seeing there's something wrong, especially among young people, just something not there. Normally, I can put my finger right on the problem, but I couldn't. This, it took me over a year. And I remember telling Dottie one time I came home, I said, I now know what it is. And she said, what is it? I said, pervasive internet pornography. That's apologist Josh McDowell on the Pure Desire podcast. He's talking about the effects of porn in the church. Uh, something I noticed was that when people start watching pornography, especially young people more than older, the source of their authority starts to erode. Uh, the Bible, scripture, church, their pastor, their parents, Jesus, it all starts to erode. Hmm. And that's what I was noticing. And I tied it directly to uh, pornography. Josh McDowell is not just saying that based on conjecture. He's compiled thousands of pages of data on porn and the church. Yeah, and this crisis is impacting both men and women, even those in leadership. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons the silence is so deafening. I think he's right. In fact, I believe the churches where porn is talked about the least are the ones where it needs to be talked about the most. Dr. Julie Slattery has devoted her life to breaking the silence and inviting the church to a truth-filled conversation. She has a ministry, Bob mentioned it earlier, Authentic Intimacy, and it provides tools to get the church participating in what she calls sexual discipleship. She wants people to start talking. Here's something she asked me when I was talking to her on my weekly video cast, Grounded. Have you ever thanked God for a, a wonderful experience sexually with your husband? And so uh, we kind of have this belief that there's like a do not enter sign when it comes to our sexuality. And so another really important step is not just bringing other people into your healing and story, but bringing God himself into that and realizing even when we look at the gospels, how many of the women that Jesus interacted with, he was interacting with them at some level about their sexuality or sexual brokenness. He is the only answer for sin, but I would say he is also the only answer for exposing lies. Yes. In fact, Jesus said, if you're truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. John 8, 31 and 32. Truth is a person. Jesus is the truth that sets us free. He is the only answer. He is the healer. And so my work as a psychologist is to learn and to apply different psychological techniques to things like trauma or to betrayal. But I can tell you psychology helps, but only Jesus can heal. Julie and I often talk about the purity movement and how it created a behavior-based purity rather than dependency on Christ. When we were recording, she asked this. Let me just ask you the question to consider. Would you define yourself as sexually pure? And you're like, I don't even really know what that means. How do you define purity? And, you know, we know through scripture that our purity comes through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not because of our actions. So for me, this concept of integrity has been so much more powerful. That integrity is when my life as a whole is, is represented well. Um, so in other words, the opposite of integrity is when we disintegrate or we have pieces of ourselves that don't make sense with the rest of who we are. And so as a Christ follower, 
that the most important thing about me, the, the, the cornerstone of my identity is that I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, that he has made me righteous and pure. And so integrity means that every area of my life needs to be surrendered to his lordship. And as I mentioned before, I think for a lot of Christian women, they've never surrendered their sexuality to God. And they may even not even know what that looks like. And integrity is, yes, saying no to sin, dealing with a problem of pornography uh, and pursuing sexual intimacy within your marriage, because God says that that's the place uh, to remember your covenant with your body. Um, but then also integrity means not letting the enemy rule in you. And so for me, the concept of sexual integrity has actually been uh, like so all encompassing that it's a constant challenge of, Lord, what does it look like for me to surrender more of this to you? And uh, Dana and Aaron, the encouraging thing about sexual integrity is that we're all on a journey. We all take steps, hopefully, towards becoming more surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. It's not an either or, all or nothing. It's every day, you know, waking up and saying, Lord, where are you in my pain? Uh, can you expose the lies that I've been believing? Would you bring healing and life to my marriage? This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Bob Gresh. No one experiences healing from lies on their own. By the very nature, lies are deceptive and they're hard to identify. So as we've said a hundred times before, we need help. Clinically informed biblical help. Yep. And some of us need more than others, but all of us need someone in the body of Christ to walk with us. The thing is, we tend to believe the lie. I've believed the lie. I can handle this on my own. Or maybe it's like, I just don't need help. That's one reason that we actually crawled into our red leather chairs, got on Zoom, and recorded conversations with those who've helped us. We wanted to model the importance of that to you. And we still are very dependent upon community years into our redemption journey. Yeah. In fact, I just flew home from Missouri last night. I was there for three days, did a little intensive with my beloved Tippy Duncan, who you met in an earlier episode. And we're going to bring in my own counselor, somebody who helps me on a weekly basis, Phil Herndon. He's on the team at the River Tree Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. And just for laughs, here's how our conversation went with him before we started talking about truth setting us free. You know why this is going to be interesting? Why? Because you don't know Phil. I don't know <laughs> Phil, and I've never had a conversation with him. Yeah, but you're always uh, lurking. You're always lurking around the kitchen. I'm when not I'm, lurking around the kitchen every week. Phil, he definite plants lurking. himself in front of the definite lurking. He puts himself in front of the refrigerator door at eight a.m. in the morning. I have to go for my coffee and my orange juice. Don't, don't forget. Don't forget getting up several times, let out the dog and other various and sundry things. <laughs> <you find. laughs> right. <laughs> Don't forget that. I think you guys are ganging up on me. Phil's so expensive. I can't afford to have any seconds lost. <laughs> wow. Okay. 30 seconds. New record. Fantastic. <laughs> Susie, say that every time? Uh, every time. <laughs> he he calculates by the minute. He I goes, do. oh, well, that just cost me 11 bucks or I whatever. Do. I do. Anyway, we started our conversation with Phil celebrating a little victory in our marriage. But then... We end up having a disagreement on tape, <laughs> one that revealed something I think every wife needs to know about men in the church. Okay, Thousand. so I have a, hap a happy redemption story to tell, I think, because what you're describing, 
years ago at the beginning of our disclosure, right before disclosure, um, Bob and I were at a vacation home in the mountains in the Caribbean, and we were just there for me to work on a book and for him to have quiet. And Bob was enraged almost the whole time because it, there wasn't, it was quiet. It was peaceful. It was slow. It was boring. Enraged <laughs> is a little bit of a harsh term. Well, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, I should say, he wasn't. Aggravating. He, no, but there was like this, it was like a volcano that wasn't exploding, but you felt like it might. That's how he felt that whole week. We were just there a few weeks ago. And so fast forward years, we're in the same place. The morning we fly there, um, neither of us felt very well. And Bob is such a gentleman. I never pick up a suitcase when on a trip. He always picks it up. But he wasn't feeling well. And we had this altercation about I needed to help with the suitcases. And I was like, oh, no, we're going back to that house where he was – the volcano waiting to blow up the whole time. And what if this is the beginning? It's just going to be like last time. And there were five, just as a personal note, <laughs> there were five suitcases. Yeah. And I needed help going down the escalator, okay? <laughs> because the one time the things fell yes. all the way down the escalator. But we're headed to this house that was hard last time. Yes. And so that was what made me fearful. He was a different person this time. He was content. He was quiet. He was at peace. Uh, it was it was the same place, the same environment, the same pace, and his brain responded very differently and entered into that in a good way. Yes, yes, <clears throat> Nana, you just that pre well both trips you described limbic resonance. Let's push pause during our conversation. Phil taught us about limbic resonance, which I'd never heard of before. Had you, Dana? No, huh? Basically, it's the limbic part of our brain reading the emotional state of another person or even just the environment. It's really cool, but we want to get into it more deeply in a future bonus episode. Yeah. So let's get back into our conversation with Phil. The volcano about to erupt. It didn't erupt. Mm -hmm. It wasn't doing anything outwardly. You felt it. Yeah. Mm. felt the rage going on. And then you felt this too. Yeah. Because he has a settled... Settle down brain. Yeah. Yes, and he's not seeking the stimulation like he was before. I've, I've come to a conclusion recently that's unsettling for me, and that is that I didn't realize how much shame was affecting me until I no. got out of it. And I struggled the whole, my whole life with depression, anxiety, all kinds of things. And now I realize mm -hmm. so much of that was shame. So much of my relational problems were was based upon just aggravation and shame that made me rage a little bit or whatever. And I think, oh, I go into an awful lot of trouble dep treating depression and anxiety. And maybe I still have some of that, but an awful lot of it was related to porn and the other things that happened. And I can't help but think that there's an awful lot of people in, that uh, are depressed and anxious right now that one of their main problems may be shame, and they've been in it for so long that they don't recognize the difference between that and real life. Yes. <clears throat> That's very insightful, Bob, honestly. I mean, um, honestly, it's so insightful. It just literally stopped all the conversation. 
It was no, it was unbelievable. It just people are no, stunned. I was hundred percent. I was hundred percent going to continue. You know? <laughs> Go ahead. No, uh, what you're what you're pinging on is the <clears throat> how toxic shame is so insulating of humanness. Yes, that's what toxic shame says. Is I'm I'm I so despise myself for being human. I'm going to move into this little isolated place over here where nobody can see how blank I am, how gross or dumb or fat or ugly or whatever the words are that go in. So two phrases go with toxic shame, despising my humanness and how I label myself when I have feelings. Hmm. And so that provides great insulation. However, we're not made to be in isolation or insulation back to God saying it's not good for man to be alone. And so what happens is you're right. That toxic shame is the power underneath, like stimulation is under so much of addiction. Toxic shame is the generator underneath it. And one of the how is one of the ways I insulate and isolate by acting out. Hmm. So yes, if I despise my humanness, I have human limitation, which is healthy shame. Like I don't know everything, I can't do everything. The toxic side of that is I hate myself for being a human. And so I find a way to provide isolation and insulation. Hmm. What you're describing, absolutely right. So I'm wondering what your redemption story looks like. I uh, grew up <clears throat> in a very churchianity home, deep south, grew up in the Atlanta suburbs, um, went to church. And on the surface, my family was great, you know, good people, good church going people. Inside the house, a little bit of a different story. Uh, my mother, I say this with respect to her, I love her. <clears throat> I miss her. She died in 2008, but she was very sick emotionally. And my house is very, very volatile, uh, very, very given to which way is the wind going to suddenly turn hmm. emotionally. <clears throat> so I got really, really good at hiding. My family also used food. Uh, there was no alcohol in my house, no nicotine in my house. To my knowledge, no, no sexual acting out, affairs, anything like that. It was food. Um, and we, the only one of the few times in my home growing up that things seemed to be in harmony is when we were eating. Yeah. And so fast forward, I end up in my mid-20s, uh, morbidly obese. In my case, an, an alcohol gene skipped a generation apparently, and I got it pretty well, pretty good dose of it, uh, drinking <clears throat> pornography and food. And it was the, the result of an intervention in my life that I recognized like I am in a bad way. So when I began to, as many men have done, as Bob did and is doing, began to tell the truth about my story, not just the content, but the emotional impact of my story on what I was seeking to make myself okay. And I began to get some help. And the help came in the form of having a redemptive place and people being firm with me, therapists being firm with me, saying, tell me the truth about how scary that was. Tell me the truth about how angry you are. Tell me the truth about how hurt and wounded you are in this. And I had the structure, in my case, I had the structure of the 12 steps to structure what felt very chaotic to me. And so my recovery early on was was automatic was was uh, immediately in this territory of 
healing emotionally and spiritually along with dealing with the symptoms. Should Christians be afraid of the 12 steps? I mean, the 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous have just seemed like the church is in fear of it and rejects it, tries to make sign of substitutes for it. Um, you have any thoughts about that? I do. Um, <clears throat> I think it's unfortunate that the wording was changed to God as I understand God, hmm. which kind of puts human beings steering the steering the car uh, rather than God. That has not always been the case, by the way, in the steps that was changed. Hmm. I don't remember what the year or don't know what the year was. Um, I think the 12 steps are a beautiful structure that are pulled from scripture. Yes. Like I am powerless over life. I'm not in the driver's seat. Well, that's what we call being poor in spirit, utterly dependent upon God. Hmm. And if I don't have God restore me to sanity, I'm going to be insane. And, and I'm going to turn the care of my life over to him. And I need to be paying attention to the harms up in a four step, the harms I've done to other people and the harms done to me and tell the truth about both of those. And then make confession in a fifth step to another human being and to God, the nature of my wrongs. And then a sixth, seventh and eighth step to prepare myself to thoroughly and truthfully make amends where I need to make amends, more confession. And then to be willing to tell my story, my story of redemption and recovery uh, to other people in a 12 step and to do the things necessary to continue in growing in Christ-likeness, which the program called to grow in sobriety. Hmm. But I, I don't shy away from those steps at all. And I don't shy away from saying um, the God of understanding is one thing. But there, there is one God. He is the God of the Old and New Testament. And many and men so find it in 12 steps. There. Many men find it in 12 steps, even though, I mean, that for, except for that one phrase, the church, you know, I, I don't think would have a problem with it. But let me ask you something that might even not be relevant in this podcast. I find that the church is feminized and that men feel emasculated which creates loneliness, angst, need for stimulation. I think about it this way. If I called 10 guys up tonight and said, you want to go out for wings in an hour? I'd say eight of them would say no because they, their wife wouldn't want them to. Pause. Okay, so this is the beginning of that disagreement Bob and I had. I was not tracking. I was offended by what he was saying. It started like this. Well, what's that have to do with church? Well, <clears throat> I think most guys in the church tread on eggshells most of the time. They don't talk like they normally would talk. They don't confront like they normally would confront. And they take on, take on a persona of the nice guy. I trust you because you think on a deep level, what's this have to do with marriages in the process of redemption? It has to do with feeling caged up and the reduction of stimulation in a guy's life. In other words, guys need some level of stimulation. Some level of stimulation is healthy, and testosterone sort of cries out for men to have that, right? That's why men yes. love to go on retreats, and they, and they don't often, but when they do, or in their, they're in nature, they're fishing or whatever, they're more alive, I guess I would say. 
So I want to pause this because it went on for quite a while, going absolutely <laughs> nowhere. Did it get anywhere? It, it did not get it anywhere. It did not get anywhere. But baby, I did some research and you were right. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> Studies show that the church is made up of 61% female and about 39% male. Now, the traditional explanation for this has been that women are more spiritual than men. But the leaders of a new movement suggest that the church's music, its messages, and the ministries cater to women. One of the leaders is David Murrow, author of a provocative book titled, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Here he is talking to Dr. James Dobson. Just before what you hear, they were talking about David's hometown, Wasilla, Alaska. Oh, that is such beautiful territory. I was telling you uh, before that uh, I went up there with my parents when I was 13 years of age, and I fell in love with Alaska. I haven't been back, but I would like to. And uh, and, and being from Alaska, where the men are men, it's it's yeah. a very it's it, a very it macho. It is a masculine state, isn't it's it? It's a macho culture, and it really brings into stark relief this problem we have with reaching men. And only about 10 percent of the men in Alaska attend church on a given Sunday. And so that was one of the reasons I began to do my research is because you just realize how what a man shortage we have, particularly in Alaska, but really in churches all over the globe. The problem is not it's not atheism. It's not there's not even really an antagonism. It's just this this feeling that being in church, they feel like they're out of place. They feel like there's something more to God than they're getting on Sunday morning. Well, you've written these two books with provocative titles, uh, as we just said. Uh, what kind of response have you had? Are people get mad at you? Uh, a few. Yeah. Uh, there's been a few negative reactions, but I think overwhelmingly positive because there is there's a recognition that the kingdom of God is not just women. It's men, women, children. It's for everyone. My grandfather was such a man. Uh, he was six foot four. Uh, he died a year before I was born, but he was a hunter and a fisherman, and uh, he just would not go to church. And my grandmother prayed for him for 40 years because he didn't want anything to do with it. He found the Lord right before he died, but uh, he was one of these macho guys that just did not feel comfortable in church. And that's a shame uh, because it shouldn't be that way. Well, I mean, my background is in marketing and advertising, and one of the things you realize is that everything has a target audience these days. So I was sitting in church one day, and my mind was wandering, and that mm -hmm. never happens to you, I know. <laughs> and suddenly I, I, I asked myself, who's the target audience of this church I'm sitting in? And I looked at the building, and it was, it was all decorated in quilts and flowers and ribbons, and there was fresh flowers on the altar and boxes of Kleenex under every pew, and the pastor was wearing a robe, and there was soft pastel colors. And the words that were coming out of his mouth were, have a passionate relationship with Jesus, and he loves you and cares for you, and the imagery. And, and I just began to realize the entire institution had this sort of this feminine bent to it, the way that we were expressing the gospel. And it was very different than the gospel that I read in the Bible, which was, you know, take up your cross and follow me. That was David Murrow talking to James Dobson about why men hate church. I encourage you to listen to their entire conversation. We'll put a link in the show notes. Hey, I have to ask the same thing Dobson asked. Are people, especially women, offended at that title? Yes, absolutely. Some are. But the thing is, the data's there. The gender gap is real. But not in all churches, of course. There are a lot where there's no discernible gap, but it is a widespread phenomenon. And David's book struck a nerve when it was released. It got featured by the New York Times, the Washington Post, and even the Wall Street Journal. 
it's interesting that you're researching into this because when we were first recording with Phil and you know the three of us, you were offended by what I said. Yeah, I was. Told I, me not to genderize I, it. I did. Yeah. Well, while I was in Missouri with Tippy this week, I had a conversation with two of our good friends, Aaron and Jason Davis. You see, they just wrote a book titled Lies Boys Believe and the Truth That Sets Them Free. They want to help parents address things like toxic masculinity, academic apathy, porn. And well, they included this topic in their book. And get this, their pastor shares their concern. He made some radical changes in their church and men are feeling good about it. They're feeling more comfortable as a result. Excellent. (laughs) Okay, this isn't really a popular position. And I don't think the conversation is anything more than started. I, I'm surprised this is like not a, it's such, <laughs> a, such a controversial thing. I, it seems so obvious to well, me. Well, I think anytime you step on gender topics, it's going to get a little bit heated. There's going to be important nuances and important opinions to hear. Here's the thing, though. The gender gap is distinct to Christianity. Other religions seem to have a gender balance, or even more men than women, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, and Islam. Any idea why that is? Well, maybe the question is, when? When did it happen? Nancy Piercy, she's a scholar I follow. She outlines a theory about this problem in her book, Total Truth, Liberating Christianity from Its Cultural Captivity. And she says that industrialization forced men to seek work away from home in factories and offices. And that created a split between the public and private spheres of life that hadn't existed before. The public sphere became secularized through the new values of competition, self-interest, and the private sphere came to represent the old values of nurturing and religion. Thus, religion came to be seen as something for women and children and not as relevant to the real world of business, politics, academia, where at the time, men were starting to do life. Women began to outnumber men quickly, um, so male pastors began to adapt churches to what they thought their female demographic would like. Okay, that makes sense. You're a research geek. I know. Okay, so anyway, what does this have to do with our battle with lust and porn. We're going to get back to our conversation with Phil to discuss my theory a bit. With technology and all the things that are happening today, we were never as domesticated as we are now. Like you hardly have to do anything physical. You hardly, you know, um, and I think that that's, uh, and one of the things that happens with porn is that you start to spend your time doing that rather than getting out and, and, being with other people. Part of what you're talking about, I think, Bob, is this idea of identity and something I've done with couples for a long time. It seems so basic is you take 10 men. They're all, they all have masculinity bestowed upon them by God. It's going to look 10 different ways and 10 women, femininity bestowed upon them by God. That's going to look 10 different ways with 10 women. But I have often had couples, no matter how long they're married, take an hour and tell their story to their spouse, the the guts of their story, and then vice versa. Then the woman, the wife tell. And what happens so often is husbands will tell stories about how their wives want them to be domesticated. And wives will tell stories about how their husband want to go off, fly off the handle with toxic masculinity, and neither of them are true. That's a great point. And I don't want to like overly stereotype gender, but 
I want to look at the data. Why aren't men more comfortable in church? But if you don't know where this husband and this wife have come from, like my wife knowing my story, how she made a comment. She went to the first family reunion that she went to before we were married. She said, wow, the the men in your family are men. So are the women because they're tough, tough blue collar. And so she knows that part of my background is kind of a, a rough background. She also knows she doesn't want that roughness at home. But when I'm out with a group of guys, I'm going to want to do things that are more that are rougher than what she than what she wants me to do at home. But her knowing my story, it's not a license to sin or to be a jerk. But she knows when I go sit with the guys around the fire pit, that kind of thing, we're going to talk about things that I won't necessarily talk about at home. And and her the same way with what she's going to do if she goes out with, with friends, if, if that's what you're getting at. Like so much of what you're describing is people not knowing each other's stories and how they really and truly operate. There we go. Understanding how your husband operates is key. Because forcing him to engage with God in a way that makes him pretend he's someone he's not is a strike at the one who made him. God gave each individual the bent they have to be who they are. If a man can tell his story with the feelings about that story, he will have more freedom to be himself, no matter how they manifest their masculinity, art, sports, whatever it is. If a man's clear in his own story and he's clear with his wife about his story, and he's dealing with that's what happens in his chest as he tells it and what the story is back there, he will be more himself in every scenario. Here's why that conversation mattered. First of all, Dana listened to me. She heard me. Not at first, but it's okay. She made the effort to honor what I was feeling about church. Yeah, here's why I think it matters. If I believe that Jesus is truth and the truth sets me free, sets my husband free, sets my marriage free— I want my man having encounters with Jesus, whether that's men on a river together catching fish or guys around a fire pit talking oh, rougher. So are you stereotyping men? What about <laughs> if I want a cupcake party? Is that No, listen, I, I know one. that you want to go on a river trip with a pastor that, you like a lot, Darren Ta- Darren. What's his last name? I, I, I want to go on a fishing trip with Phil and Darren, but I keep not registering on time. Well, yeah, there you go. That's why you need me. Anyway, the point is we need to be willing to listen to our husband's story and his experience of church. Yeah, Dana and I don't agree on everything about God, theology, church, but we do agree on this. Jesus Christ is the truth that sets us free. And we're both pressing into that in our own way. And we hope you will too. Hey, I got one question to ask you, and that is this. Do you think that some men might use what we just said as an excuse not to be involved in church? Yeah, some men will. Of course they will. But I I think that's kind of ridiculous. Um, Men, we need to go to church. um, But I think we need to be more actively participating and leading so that we can put forth those activities of fire pitting and rivering. (laughs) Rivering, yes. Okay, and women, let your man experience Jesus the way God designed him to experience Jesus. Well, that's the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. 
Episodes 1 through 7 of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Be sure to read chapter 11 titled Truth Number 7, The Truth Will Set You Free. At the end of that chapter, you'll find simple conversation starters. Yeah, we hope they'll help you begin to identify any lies that you may be believing so you can replace them with God's truth. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Okay, before we extend a special invitation, let me say this. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast because we think we have a few more bonus episodes in us and we're going to release those in the coming weeks and months. For example, we still have a lot of good content from Joyce Penner, our sex therapist. Yeah, like what she said about S-E-X-T-O-Y-S for in case children are listening. <laughs> yeah, baby, like what she said about those. It was it was good what she said. I think it was fascinating. I, I learned a lot. Yeah. And we, and we still haven't addressed the question that we get a lot. What should we tell our kids? As we mentioned, Phil told us about something called limbic resonance, and that conversation will help inform if, when, and how you talk to your children about your redemption story. And finally, I had a woman named Nicole call me. She challenged me to be careful to help clarify the difference between a difficult marriage and one that's become more destructive. She says she and her husband have really a different redemption story, and it included some destructive behavior. Being able to identify that was critical in knowing what kind of help they needed. So I think I'd like to include an episode on the difficult topic of abuse. Yeah, you don't want to miss those episodes. So subscribe to the podcast so you're notified when we release the new ones. Okay, so here's the invitation. No marriage remains neutral. Every day you're either growing in friendship or you're drifting further apart. And Bob and I understand the drift. Yeah, we sure do. When we suffered from it, a man named Pete Kuiper helped us reconnect through a pretty serious counseling intensive. Yeah, that experience included these daily one-hour lectures that we watched that was really cool because they integrated biblical truth with clinical understanding, and we loved them. I really believe that pain is God's gift rather than a problem. These incredible messages equipped us to combat that disconnection we were experiencing. If you are experiencing true intimacy with another person, their message of, I love you, not just because of of how good you are or what you've done right, but I love you because I know who you are in Christ and that you are valuable and precious. Yeah, Dana, when you and I left, we were like, how do we get this like life-changing content to as many people as we know? Mm-hmm. No matter what issue they might be facing. So this fall, we're packing our bags for a refueling weekend in the beautiful Dominican Republic, during which we will tape Pete's messages in front of a limited capacity audience. You're invited to be a part of it as long as we still have space. We only have room for a few dozen couples. It's happening September 21 to 24, 2023 at Casa de Campo Resort in the Dominican Republic. You'll get phenomenal biblical teaching, organic networking with other couples and professionals, and understanding on sexual theology and healing. You'll also be able to hit the beach, the spa, or the golf course in between sessions. And I think they have no river, but they do have a fire pit. <laughs> Visit danagresh.com slash marriage weekend to apply to be in this special group of couples. 